Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. We can start recording. Basically, start. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your co-host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other co-host, Susan Fox. And with us today is the man behind the... The... The Steampunk <laughs> Steam World's, World's Fair. Fair. Yes, I finally stumbled it out. <laughs> this is Jeff Mock. Welcome yes. to the show. You know, as a weird historical note, that one of the many anachronisms that I like to use as a metaphor for how poorly we understand the 19th century, uh, my family came over from Transylvania wow. in the 19th century. Wow. Ellis Island, yes. Um, there are a lot of stories about... There's a story where my great-grandfather was so poor that he came to America with a crust of black bread and a pair of shoes. And when he came to America, he threw them both away because neither tasted very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And apparently, he told the immigration officials, the immigration officials that the name was Mach, like Macher, one who makes things. And they wrote down Mac and spelled it M-A-C-H. And no one has been able to get my name right since that time. Um, and I figure... At this point, I'm all for ridiculously misinterpreted 19th century, so I'll answer any pronunciation of my name. <laughs> so it's Jeff Mack? It is Jeff Mack. Like Jeff Mack. Mack. Mack truck, or like oh. they said in high school, altogether too many times. Uh, because I look at the way your name is spelled, M-A-C-H, and I think we're breaking to... the sound barrier, you know. Oh, yeah, we're try trying to do this uh, in the right language. Oh, well, what were we Jeff thinking? Jeff Mack. All righty. Got Jeff it. Mack. But but macher or makers have have a lot to do with this, the the steampunk world since we pretty yes. much have to make it ourselves. That is exactly how I would think of it. Yes, steampunk Back. is such a uh, such an interesting phenomenon. It's it's the the well the, the future didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, so we're re rewriting it. Yeah, the rewriting the past's future. <laughs> the way the future was. We are. It should have uh, brass rails and, and parasols. I think, I think in a way that, uh, I think in a way steampunk is sort of an effort to return science fiction into something that's more approachable and that people understand more readily. Steam, steam technology is something that uh, almost anybody with a wrench and half a brain can figure out for the most part. You know, I was listening to a really excellent YouTube about this. I wish I could remember who did it. It was a game series. And they were actually talking about William Gibson and saying that William Gibson 
tried to redevelop science fiction by saying that you can only understand how to create a future, as science fiction often does, if you feel like you have a grasp of the past. And the more simplistic your grasp of the past, the more simplistic your grasp of what the future might be is, and the more complex a past you are able to envision historiographically, the more interesting or divergent a future you could create. And I think one of the powers of steampunk is that it actually bridges not the gap of science fiction being too difficult to get, but the gap of giving you range in science fiction. You can go from everyone's favorite love-hate relationship with the original Star Wars movies as not being the greatest works of science fiction and fantasy, not the most brain-blowing pieces of imaginary exploration, straight up to, well, something like Mona Lisa Overdrive or one of the works of William Gibson or something really Octavia E. Butler, something really complex. Steampunk lets you go with that whole range and is okay if your range is as simple as I'm wearing a funny hat or as complicated as I've created an entire 19th century world that doesn't exist in a book or in a piece of artwork. I've made it in my head so that I could create a costume for it so that I could talk about a character that I like to be sometimes. And that's a fascinating emotional and intellectual space to play around in. That's it's interesting that you should uh, mention William Gibson. I when Snow Crash first came out, that was not one of his, was it? That was uh Neil Stevenson. Pardon? But uh Neil, Neil Stevenson. Yes. Neil Stevenson. Not William- Neil Stevenson. Yeah, but uh, that was definitely in the vein. Uh and um but I read all of the cyberpunk novels that William Gibson wrote. Uh and Mona Lisa Overdrive was one of my favorites. And I'm quite pleased in the fact that I've actually read the books we're talking about. <laughs> How rare is that? Um, but, um, yeah, I, the idea of of having a future that you can hold in your head uh, is very appealing. Uh, if you can... If you can start with a basic construction set, you can recreate this particular genre um, in any particular direction that you want to, simply by re- recombin- recombining. recombining, thank you, uh, the various elements and finding new explanations and definitions for them. I think that is a lot of the power of steampunk that it gives you building blocks with which you can do something simple and fun, which is fantastic or incredibly complex. And that's, that's rare for a movement in science fiction or fandom. I remember quite well the years when what we knew as fandom way back in say the eighties, fans, geeks, nerds were often trying to gatekeep the idea mm-hmm. of say comic book heroes and not and did not want the mainstream to embrace say batman as it has now because they wanted to own it and they felt that if the mainstream owned it it would become dumbed down it would be it would be adulterated it would no longer be something that was rich and special and they were not entirely right and they were not entirely wrong there's a character in the pixar movie the incredibles uh, this character named Supreme. I think he's... Was it Supreme? What are you looking at me for? I don't know which character you're the, talking the, about. The red hair and the jumpsuit with the big ass. Oh, oh. Supreme. No. Yes. Um, 
He's the villain of the piece. He he wanted he he wanted well he wanted to be uh, Mr. Incredible's sidekick, Mm -hmm. and he's you know pretty much Mr. Incredible said, "Go home, boy. You'll get hurt." But what he said when he decided to take his revenge was, "I'm going to make everyone super, and when everyone's super, no one will be." And that was how he was going to destroy the future. And uh, and it's very much the same thing. Uh, the what happened with popular culture, uh, in a way, has has destroyed some of the some of what made it special in the first place. But well, but not the content of the uh, the material itself. Batman is still Batman, just because there's you know several million more people who like Batman does didn't didn't change the Batman comics any. It just made Comic Cons more crowded. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. They made Comic Cons more crowded. I, I didn't mean it literally. <laughs> I think for me, there's again this thought of range, because if you feel like if everyone were super, then nobody would be super. Well, that is not actually right at all. If everyone were super, everyone would be super, um, because you'd have the non-super past to compare it with, and. Making everyone super wouldn't make people unspecial. It would just create more range of what people can do. You would have people who have the ability to lift buildings, who stay at home and binge watch the Golden Girls, which is a perfectly fine occupation. And you'd have people who could lift buildings who might use that to try to find a different physical process for, to use the worst Superman uh, moment I can think of, actually, turning coal into diamonds. Um, it is what you do with being super that makes a superhero of any sort, which is exactly why we are so enthralled by Batman, who often pointed out does not have the powers of anyone around him. He is just someone who strives on a perpetual basis to do the thing he is driven to do and to do it so well that he will always succeed and to find a way to make that happen. And he is an ordinary human being magnified by effort. And in a world where everyone was super, you would have super beings who are just the regular size and super beings who are magnified by what they tried to do. In a world where geekery is available to the, if you want to say the masses, I don't want to deprecate people, to the masses, what distinguishes us is what we do with that geekery, not, well, everyone can now wear a Batman t-shirt, everyone can now buy a um, uh, Captain America shield and so it's no longer special. I think you've touched on I think one of the important features of steampunk as a genre and that is that in just about every case the the major characters in the steampunk stories are just men and women. They are they might be augmented by special <laughs> devices and and curious little gadgets and things. I like don't know. That. Are they? They're. Sm- it's not the one who's stronger than everyone else. It's the one who's smarter than everyone else. Um. Oh god. Uh, uh, oh god. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm trying to remember all the names of uh, characters from Jules Verne and you know Captain Nemo was smarter than everyone else. Um, yes, Robert. he's pointing at our dog named Nemo. I can't imagine why you would do that, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> Rober, um, Doc Savage, which is sort Have of in the, no the diesel. Fear, the man of bronze is here. Bing. 
Yep. <laughs> yes, but but it's the smart ones who mm-hmm. are the the heroes here. Yeah, that's really true. It's uh, steampunk kind of glorifies that thing that makes science, you know, sci-fi fans uh, self-identify uh, as ner- as nerds. You know, they think yes. so when you're the smartest one in the room, and then you're in a big room full of other people who are the smartest people in their rooms. You either get big feuds or, or some pretty wonderful things, <laughs> one or the other. Exactly. There was a huge fight in steampunk, oh, in steampunk culture, perhaps, I guess at this point would be nine years ago, nine, ten, when what we know as steampunk as a cultural phenomenon, as a thing that people did, started happening. There was originally a specific vocal movement led by a couple of specific people, that steampunk was about certain ways of reinterpreting the 19th century, that it had certain very specific definitions and certain very specific, and took on certain very specific aspects of Victoriana, and that the best steampunk was the person with the shiniest clothing, the fanciest stuff, the most exotic taste in absinthe and clotted cream, that steampunk was to be kind of an elite and that steampunks who could choose what they were should all choose to be emperors and captains and presidents. And there was a counter movement of which I was one part. Many other, um, many other people were part of it that said, no way steampunk is made by the airship mechanics without all the people who might not lead lives of privilege Without all the people who make stuff work, you don't have steampunk. And honestly, without all the human beings who may not be royal, but who choose to take on roles that are, who could choose to be like Galactic Emperor and choose instead to be like um, third assistant janitor, those are people who are going to have monkey on the airship. I was called a steampunk Dadaist at some point. I said, thank you. And I was told that was not a compliment. Uh, There are a lot of people who left the steampunk movement because... A bunch of people in steampunk said, we want steampunk to be welcoming. We want it to be inclusive. We are not going to care anywhere near as much about whether you got your goggles from Hot Topic or whether you purchased them from the official jeweler to the crown of Great Britain. We're going to care a lot more about what you do and what you do with steampunk and how you treat other people because we are an invented culture and we can choose what to be. And people chose that vision overwhelmingly and the people who wanted a i'm going to say snottier more elitist steampunk that was more exclusionary um picked up their cogs and went home this sounds a lot like the sad puppies business no from i don't about even want to get ago. into that oh. i mean this this sounds like this the same sort of elitist the rigid elitist thinking that gave us the sad puppies that's that's a somewhat different and more complex situation yeah, I, I suppose it is, but uh, I can definitely the, the ones see who the want to dress up as as elite lords and ladies may or may not have actually wanted to run the fandom. They just wanted to swan around and be she mm. she be adored by the fandom. Yes, yeah, and be adored and not actually do the work of running the events, which you do. I do, and um, running steampunk events is. Not in and of itself a glamorous business, a fascinating business, a mm-hmm. fun business a lot of the time, challenging, 
Um, and there are certainly a lot of wonderful people who give me incredible support, but um, it's not, uh, gosh, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm going to have tea with the queen anytime soon. I don't think I'm going to get that invitation. Nice, okay, uh, so. nice segue, Susan, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. <laughs> Trying to honor our guest and his work. I don't want to pull us too far away from literary sci-fi if you want to go in that direction, because you mentioned Neil Stevenson, and actually I think possibly I love and could talk about K.W. Jeter's work forever, but if we're talking about a mixture of breaking the molds in science fiction and a question of culture, it would be Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age by mm, a huge yes. Large... Oh, yes, I've read, that, I've read that book as well. I haven't. Tell me about it. In, in a sci-fi, in one of the sci-fi worlds where there's plenty, where there's some sort of ability to have a duplicator, where you can have a currency-less, a currency-less society, where the question is not how to have the things or how to have access to medicine or food or technology, uh, like in the culture novels, like in John Barnes, some of John Barnes' work, um, like parts of the Star Trek universe, depending on how you see it. What exactly do you choose to do? In that particular world, in my the way I read that book, a number of different powerful concerns, semi-nation states, semi-corporations, make very conscious choices about the cultures they pick. And these highly advanced technological civilizations pick cultures like Confucian China or Victorian England and attempt to embody their, embody, embody their and personify their traits and characteristics because they believe that through an interpretation of those cultures, they will create a world that is better, that in a world of unlimited plenty, what you need are actually the things that make us human, our cultural restrictions, mores, and possibilities, not simply a limitless potentiality that has no shape or form, which may not be formed because humans don't always work well with a completely blank page. They tend to need boundaries. That's one of the things that if you're creating anything, one of the biggest enemies you have, one of the most terrifying things you can confront is a blank page or a blank canvas. Well, and this is why blank verse isn't as good as a sonnet, which has very strict strictures. You can say anything you want in a sonnet, but you have to say it in iambic pentameter in a certain rhyming scheme. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's your boundaries. Well, and it gives you the uh, it gives you a structure to begin with, you know, a, a, a place to begin, a, a reference point from which everything else springs. And if you don't have that, you are standing in the middle of a great void. And uh, yes. so now I want to find the Diamond Age by um, Neil Stevenson. Did you say? Yes. Okay. It's. I feel like it's one of the underrated works in steampunk, especially since it deals with the future. But it's really formative, particularly for me, because it's my absolute belief that the utterly ridiculous and completely impossible past of steampunk, which we all as steampunks embrace in our own weird various ways, is precisely that. It is choosing and creating a culture, and a culture is arguably the most sophisticated human technology we have ever devised and other pieces of human technology, which have come out of culture, like the printing press, the computer, the smartphone, the automobile. These are amazing pieces of technology, but the human ability to develop culture is 
arguably the most fascinating and most powerful technological tool we have ever been able to create. And being able to choose and build a culture in the internet age, sort of from scratch, with a bunch of pieces given to us by a number of amazing authors and influences and pieces of history. But being able to choose that culture has been incredibly powerful. The steampunk movement has been able to just directly say, we want a friendly movement. We want to have less gatekeeping than other movements. Um, I was a punk in my youth, and I loved it. And I felt like as a, as a punk, I was really excited to be part of an attempt to bring down some of what I saw as the corporatism and the commercialization that was really harming our country, our world. I was, you know, I was a kid with some rather pretentious thoughts, but try and smash those things and make something simpler happen and say that you didn't need, say, corporate rock, you didn't need, say, corporate sponsors was a really powerful idea. But it's a super limited idea because the moment you became reasonably powerful in the punk scene, you suddenly had money and you suddenly had the things that were antithetical to punk rock and to create punk outside of bursts of emotional or artistic energy to create anything sustainable you had to create something that probably was not actually going to be punk it was a living contradiction and i think it is part of why the punk movement had so much difficulty there was really not that far for the punk movement to go i mean it was it was an expression of an idea fixed in a particular moment in time and it really didn't have a destination and it really didn't have um it didn't have growth potential so uh this is this, this is why i think steampunk is um is at least somewhat more viable it, i think that steampunk unfortunately also has a limited growth potential. There's only so many places you can go with it. Uh, but at least within that microcosm, it does have the potential for exploration of new ideas and uh, re rethinking the way we, we do things and the way we think about things. I really like the way you put that. I, I really feel that I really feel that as a geek movement, as a movement that has come out of fandom and come out of geek movements, it's a little unique. There aren't a lot of other movements in the fandom world that have roots in both fandom and punk rock, for example. There aren't that many movements in fandom which ask a whole lot less about your fan cred and yet because of course you still get people who are you still get a desire for credibility in the geek world and the fan world and there's a certain amount of well I'm a guitar player I'm not a very good guitar player when I see someone who clearly has an extensive knowledge of music and an extensive mental and physical library of scales and styles and songs and ability to create things I will admire that tremendously I can write songs and get by um, and I'm still fascinated by someone who has all that knowledge. I think that it's possible now to be in fandom and possible to be, say, the world's biggest fan of the latest Captain America movie 
without ever having read a single Captain America comic book or without knowing anything about the history of comics or without knowing how comics as we know them used to be comic book shops, heck, used to be a very, very small club and a very struggling thing and a thing that was considered just for kids. And we don't have those barriers anymore. And there's a simultaneous joy of this opened door and this real fear that we've lost something special by removing some of the things that helped us define ourselves by struggle and helped us forge ourselves by the fact that we had to do things that other people didn't want to do and look down on. I look at it slightly differently. I think that, I think that we as geeks defined ourselves by the fact that we were different from everyone around us. And, um, because these things were difficult to grasp or were specialized in, in their interest or their appeal, it made them more accessible for us and less accessible for everybody else. The fact that comic books and science fiction and steampunk and pursuits of that nature have become broadly accepted means that what made them special, what made them unique has sort of been stripped away because those, those, those boundaries and, and those pathways are now no longer the obscure little yeah. side paths. Yeah. You, 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 you know? think that all the uh, barriers are removed. Try being a woman going into a comic book store. Try being um, a person of yeah. color going into the comic book store in the wrong neighborhood. There's, there's plenty of barriers still to bust down. Yeah, that's that's certainly true, uh, but it's speaking as a white male, <laughs> yeah. which you know I I obviously don't have the experience, the additional experience of being uh, either a person of color or female or something like that. Uh, but uh, the secret garden is no longer a secret, and uh, and that makes it more difficult to retreat into that world because you can't get away from the throngs. If I'm going to look at both of those pieces, because I feel like there's a lot of value in both of those things and a lot of areas that I want to touch on. I don't want to go on too much length, so I'll think. In terms of the Secret Garden, I feel like that's exactly what our opportunity is as well, that if the Secret Garden is now a bigger place that more people know about and more people can enter. What can we do with a garden that is special? What can we do with a place that is no longer special by virtue of its being unknown? If it is now known, how do we take that quality of being known and do something that retains the things that made us love this garden while still embracing the people who've come in? Can we put up new trees in the garden? Can we put up a flower bed of flowers that bloom in certain seasons? Can we, I'm really bad at gardening. I shouldn't be attempting this metaphor, but can we put in a waterfall? Can we take this part of the garden, which is often shady, and have a person who has a good singing voice choose to come and just serenade people a couple hours a day when it's spring? Can we take that no longer secret garden and make it 
an even more special place because we have more people there to help make it an even more special place. And if we are, in fact, admitting more people to the garden, or in fact, if the garden gates have been torn down and people can just get in when they want, perhaps it is incumbent upon those of us who've been in the garden a long time to try to step physically outside of the garden and say, hey, if you are someone who has traditionally been excluded from places that include this garden, if you are a person of color, if you are female identified, if you are, say, a queer person like myself, um, perhaps we would like to make you particularly welcome. Perhaps we would like to step outside the garden, put up a big sign saying, hey, whoever you are, come in. Perhaps we want to walk outside the garden and distribute little invitations saying, come on in. Perhaps <clears throat> both of these things are opportunities. You're, you're not seeing the general public as just people with big stompy feet who are going to crush your flowers. You're, you're cultivating gardeners to make it we even are, better. And I feel like most people would choose to be gardeners if they, want, if they were given the opportunity. And I also feel with all my heart that if I'm wrong about most people wanting to be gardeners and it turns out that the general public wanted to be people with big stompy boots destroy the garden, let a whole bunch of people who are intent on destruction because they don't understand anything better face a group of smaller but deeply determined individuals who understand the power of creation and the people with the big stompy boots are in some trouble. <laughs> That's true. Because the rest of us will invent, invent jet boots. <laughs> we will. We will. Ever, ever been stomped by a jet boot? It hurts and it burns. <laughs> so cool. So what's, um, let's see, the next uh, Steampunk World's Fair is coming up May 4th through 6th. Is In that... this particular space-time continuum, yes. Excellent. Um, actually, coming up really soon is... As a side note, one of the benefits of having that bigger garden is that steampunk, having kind of grown up in the time of that bigger garden, has a chance to do things which can have effects in the rest of the world. So there are a number of museums and cultural spaces, particularly those with roots in the 19th century, which do steampunk benefit events. And January 20th through 21st in Bristol, Connecticut, at the Carousel Museum, a beautiful little museum. There's actually the Brass Ring Festival that I do not run. My friend Lauren, a really talented um, person, runs that event. It's a fantastic little steampunk festival. It's two days long. It is a real gem. And all of the money goes um, to making a great event and to helping out the museum. And so this marvelous carousel museum which is not well known, though it was written up in the New York Times in, I believe, 1987. Oh, goodness. Um, has an injection of people who've never heard of it before, never seen it before, who come by because they bring in steampunk bands and performers and speakers and steampunks and people who might have heard of steampunk and been like, well, I don't know what steampunk is exactly, but it sounds like it might be cool and I don't live that far from this museum, so maybe I'll pay my $15 admission and check it out. Um, I'm really proud of steampunk that such things exist and i'm really excited when i get to be a part of them and so that's the nearest thing on my own radar and then of course the steampunk world's fair in may is pretty much a large focus of my life um it's one of my favorite events 
Um, and I, I would say it's right up there with my wedding. And that's hard to do because my wedding sold a lot of tickets. <laughs> you cool. sold tickets to your wedding? <clears throat> well, yeah. Um, we had Frenchie the Punk and the White Elephant Burlesque Society. And just oh the entertainment at the wedding was wonderful. Why didn't we the think of that? Was great. And um, my parents were grumpy despite the fact that I gave them discounts on their tickets. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> Listen, most what? parents have to pay for the wedding. They should be, <laughs> you know, relieved. The wedding was actually part of another event that didn't happen as well. That was supposed to be a benefit for the uh, Tesla Museum. And there, I've never been able to establish good communications with the Tesla Museum. I don't know why. Um, but That's too bad. That is. Um, the event around it didn't end up happening. But part of it was on a serious note that renting a hotel space is expensive and mm -hmm. you need to do things like meet a catering minimum. And uh, one way to do that was actually to have the wedding there. So the wedding was originally kind of intended, well, the wedding as an event, the wedding itself was intended to marry myself and my husband, <laughs> but right. the wedding event was originally intended to help benefit an organization. And, um, that part did not work, sadly. But the wedding seems to have taken nicely. Um, well, good. You, you should be happy forever. I'm, I'm quite happy. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right. There we are. Hello. I feel a little bad for my husband, who uh, has to spend a lot of time with a weirdo steampunk workaholic. But uh, outside <laughs> of that, I'm okay. Hey, he knew the job was dangerous when he took it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's got his own weird, fun things to do. He does. Um, he's really into beat poetry, which is fantastic. Mm. That um, is its own world, and it's brilliant. I did my uh, my my eldest child's speech for my parents' wed um, 50th wedding anniversary as beat poetry. Oh, that sounds kind of marvelous. I my fingers, I had a striped shirt and a... And a, and a beret and and had wild metaphors about everybody around them at the time. And it was, it was, I thought it was pretty brilliant, frankly. I, it sounds like it was brilliant to me. I can't know without the poem, but I would just imagine so. <laughs> we have actually had weddings at the Steampunk World's Fair pretty much every year for the past several years. Um, we usually get at least one couple who wants to get married at the Steampunk World's Fair. Great. There are, uh, absolutely. There are a whole bunch of, well, I'm, I'm noting the passing of the years myself by watching a whole bunch of little tiny steam babies um, <laughs> growing up until they're as tall as I am at this point. Um, it does happen in a real society, you know? It, it sure does. And let us not let us not look away from the fact that steampunk as a social movement in geek culture has the solemn duty of attempting to help geeks get laid. In <laughs> you know, the whole, you know, oh, they live in their parents' basement and they never get laid is, is the big lie. And maybe that's what we don't want the general public to know. <laughs> I mean, if I were the person who ran the world's largest kink event for geeks, um, 
which I am, I would say that one of the largest kink events on the East Coast is the all-geek kink event. Um, the idea that nerds do not have sex is a tremendous lie. And you know, These people know where to get custom corsets done, and that's just the beginning. Heck, some of them know how to make custom corsets. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I joke a little about it, but also the social power of steampunk is spectacular, particularly because it has that whole aspect of please come in and be welcome. And I, if I can be direct, um, the Steampunk World's Fair was maintaining the idea of if you feel that you are doing something steampunk or if you just like steampunk, no matter how you're dressed, no matter what your experience is, come in, you are welcome. We were one of the first major events to do that, one of the first major steampunk events to do that, possibly the first to do it quite so loudly. This must and, make you very beloved. You know, some people thought that it was going to be terrible. Some people thought it was the end of steampunk. Some people simply thought that we would get, quote-unquote, invaded by, I guess, those big stompy boots you talked about before, that, you know, the place would be full of rubes, whatever rubes are, that that it would not be a, a good steampunk event. And it became and still is the world's largest ticketed steampunk event. Well, everybody um, started out as a rube sometime. They, they'll they derubify as, as uh, they spend the whole day with you. Exactly. And that's the whole thing that actually even if you decide that nobody's a rube, that everyone, our self-identity is, if you would like to come and hang out with us, we would like you to come and hang out with us. Nobody is normal. Everybody's weird. If you, we will not, we will not check your birth certificate to see if the doctor marked weird on it. Um, we will not, we will not police gender, sexuality, race, or perceived level of steampunkiness. Um, I have four years, um, Never, ever, ever worn, okay, with the exception of the appearance on Cake Boss, for which I was brilliantly costumed by um, by my friend Eric, who is just a costuming genius. But with the exception of that afternoon, I have never worn anything more complex than a pair of black slacks, a t-shirt with my name and or one of our events on it and uh, a hat with goggles actually also by Eric. Not ever. Um, Even your wedding? You well, must have never dressed for that. At my wedding, I'm pretty sure I, uh, I'm pretty sure I wore, uh, I don't remember what I wore at my wedding. I would have to look at the wedding photos. <laughs> it's all kind of blur. <coughs> but, being an accepting, being a welcoming steampunk event has had exactly the opposite effect that everyone that everyone who was a naysayer predicted. People who were naysayers felt that in letting bands that were not traditionally considered steampunk perform, we would have people not interested in the music, uh, or we would dilute steampunk music until steampunk music wasn't interesting to people as a genre. And they were tremendously wrong. 
what we helped do is helped expand the idea of what steampunk music could be, what it could be about, how you could dress if you wanted to be a band that was in the steampunk world, and whether or not it was okay. It is for a steampunk band to also be a fairy band and play fairy festivals and also be a renaissance fair band and play renaissance fairs and also be a goth band and play goth clubs. Um, We decided that we would let people who had interesting workshops on theater, on martial arts, on gaming, that might not specifically fit as directly into a steampunk mold, we would let them come in and pretty much invariantly what ended up happening was that all of those people chose of their own free will to say, I would be interested in taking this flavor, this genre, this culture, this idea that is steampunk, and seeing if I can make a part of it my own. That in giving people more freedom to do more of what they wanted to do and be accepted at a steampunk event, we ended up creating a whole lot more steampunks because we gave people the ability to say, you know, I've never done steampunk stuff before. I wonder what it would be like to write a steampunk song. And thus began a whole lot of steampunk songs. And I feel like this is the model that... I think this is one of the core pieces of the steampunk world. That I am this guy, Jeff Mack. I run the Steampunk World's Fair, the world's largest steampunk event. I have this whole bunch of stuff that I love. I have this whole bunch of science fiction that I love. I live in a small apartment crammed with approximately 3,000 books would be the actual count. Don't tell my mother. I told her I got rid of some of the books I wasn't reading. (laughs) Um, I do not own steampunk. The biggest bands in steampunk do not own steampunk. It's not like the punk movement where you can say, okay, well, the Clash and the Sex Pistols. It's not like the goth movement where you could say, for example, Bauhaus, Peter Murphy. It's not like most recognized cultural movements. Heck, it's not like cyberpunk, where you could say, well, the dean of cyberpunk is probably William Gibson, and you have people like Neil Stevenson. It's not like most genres. No single person owns it. No single person defines it. No one definition has to stick to steampunk. Steampunk is allowed to evolve, and because we all have a mutual interest in seeing steampunk remain weird, wonderful, whimsical, something that has some sort of general look and feel that makes us think about steam and cogs and gears and alternative technologies and approximately the 19th century. We all have a will to keep making something that will fit, say, the poetic scheme of steampunk, but break the barriers of what exactly that means, what you can put inside it. Because we all have motivation to do that, steampunk keeps growing. Well, and on that note, uh, thank you very much, Jeff Mack, and now I'm pronouncing your name correctly, for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. This has been a really fun conversation. Very illuminating. And we don't get much of a chance to explore uh, ideas like this on this show, uh, mostly because, you know, people come on and they want to talk about their one Selling their book or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this has been been a very, very nice change of pace, and I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm really glad to provide that change of pace, and I'm glad to talk about building interesting shared worlds. All right. Well, let's all share the world on the Event Horizon. 
You have been listening to episode 188 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for January 6th, 2018. Our guest has been Jeff Mack, noted steampunk expert and founder and showrunner of the Steampunk World's Fair, slated this year for May 4th through 6th in New Jersey. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again tomorrow, Sunday, January 8th, 2018 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of these airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts with the members of our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash kryptonradio getting first dibs. Be sure to join us next week, January 13th, when we will be speaking with the childlike empress herself, Miss Tammy Stronach, from the beloved film The NeverEnding Story. Krypton Radio is nerd-supported geek culture radio. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Event Horizon, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and agree to donate $5 a month. It will help keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Sherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is the first of 2018 and is copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>